<laughs> That's so weird. <laughs> Tried to figure out a better transition, but it's like, well, there's me. All right, I'll just listen to me for a little while. There we go. Uh, hey, good morning. How you all doing? Good, good. Happy 4th of July weekend. Hopefully you guys have had a chance to celebrate some. Uh, I live in Monona, and so we're almost like right across the street from the fireworks last night, so that was awesome. We had like 30 people over to our house, and I, I can't hear anymore. So, and, and I got up this morning, and actually we have like debris of fireworks all of our lawn. We're that close, which is both exciting, and then as their sparks are coming down on your roof, you're like, cool, fire insurance, awesome. Uh, but hey, it's great to be with you guys this morning. My name is John Anderson. I am the pastor of uh, community development here at Door Creek, uh, which means that most of my job, most of my week is spent uh, working with our local and our global community development projects, uh, which is also often known as missions or outreach. And I love what I get to do. It's an awesome job and it's a lot of fun being here doing that. And then occasionally I get to be here on the weekends and teaching. And so this is a real treat for me to be with you uh, this morning and this weekend. Um, so this August, I'm going to be celebrating my uh, eighth year of being married to my wonderful wife, Mary, who's actually here in the service now. So I have permission to tell this story, uh, which should make you a little nervous with that lead in there. Uh, so our pathway to marriage was a little bit of an unexpected one. Uh, back when I was single, I used to keep a journal. And um, one of the things that I would often write about was my future spouse. And, and this, these journal entries would take lots of different forms. Sometimes I would write out prayers uh, to my future wife, and that's probably about as good and as holy as it got. Other times I would write out lists of names of like potential mates, like real people. I do not recommend doing that. <laughs> like those lists can be awkward someday. Uh, and then the, the other thing that I would do is I read out characteristics of like uh, preferred characteristics to non-negotiables. And I, you know, over time came up with quite a list. And, and for me, it became clear that the kind of spouse, the kind of woman that I was looking for was somebody uh, who, who played soccer, who was into sports in general, who loved the outdoors. So they were into camping, canoeing, hiking, all, anything pretty much outside. They loved doing, they loved eating great food, going to coffee shops, reading and discussing theology, watching action movies. And of course, was just like incredibly beautiful. And I should also mention this, and I, I journaled this, so I have record of this. It was really important to me that I find somebody who was um, not too emotional, because emotions are scary, right? Like a couple chuckles and a couple people being like, "Watch out, buddy, you are on thin ice right now." And then, and then I met my wife, and she is incredibly beautiful. She loves the outdoors. But of this list that I had, she was maybe like half of the things on this list. Uh, for example, her idea of an action movie was like how quickly the male character could fall in love with the female lead. And she's like, that's a good action movie. No. And as far as like emotional goes, she's probably the most emotionally expressive person I have ever met. And, and for me, this... this uh, disconnect between like what I was looking for and who I was in relationship, this was like actually kind of a problem for me. This was a kind of a challenge, if I'm being honest with you guys. Until one night, uh, a couple of months after we'd been dating, when she brought out her list. <laughs> and when she was a teenager, she had created a list of 73 <laughs> must-have required qualities in a husband. And let me just share a couple of them with you. Um, I've seen this list. It's, it's awesome. All right, so here's just a couple of them. Uh, this person must be romantic, independent, a great dancer, and my personal favorite, number 71, can sometimes read my mind. 
I'm working on that one. And you guys, I think this is the truth. I think of those 73 characteristics, I think I was probably like five of them. And, and for both of us, we had this light bulb moment in our, in our dating relationship where we suddenly realized that what we had articulated on paper is that we had created this idealized, opposite sex, really attractive profile of our preferred selves. <laughs> and man, thank God we didn't get what we wanted. In fact, what we got was something so much better and so much beyond what we could have imagined. And so this summer we celebrate eight years of being married. We've got two kids. We've got a third on the way. And it has been an awesome adventure so far. And I can't imagine journeying through life with a better person. It's been awesome. Now, why am I telling you this story? Because in the passage today that we're going to look at in Luke, we're going to see Jesus coming on the scene, and he's upending all these expectations of the Messiah. People have been waiting for the Messiah for centuries, and, and he's coming here, and he's not who they expected. In fact, what we're going to see is that he was far greater than what anyone expected. So take your Bibles and turn to Luke uh, chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Now, as you do that, let me just make sure we're all kind of on the same page. So if you're just joining us, we have been going through a series on Luke for a long time now. And at the very beginning of Luke, he writes his thesis statement, which is kind of the main point of the whole book. And he writes this, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And so the book of Luke, simply put, is just a case study, an um, argument for the, Jesus being the Messiah. He is the one that they've been expecting, even if it's not exactly what people thought it was going to look like. And in the text today, we're going to find ourselves, we're in the final week of Jesus' life here on earth before his trial, execution, and resurrection from the dead. And just a couple days ago, he's entered Jerusalem, and the city is abuzz about who he is. People all over are talking about him. Is he the one? Is he the one we've been expecting? Is he the Messiah? And they're just talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. And this buzz is exciting for some, but for others, as we see in the stories, it's threatening. Specifically, it's threatening to those who are the religious authorities or those who are in power. And now Jesus, in the scene that we're at today, is near the temple. And R.D. talked last week about the significance of that. But, but what Jesus has been saying and doing, it's threatening the very livelihood and the authority of the Jewish religious leaders. And so in response to that, they're doing anything they can to discredit him. They're trying to get him to self-incriminate through word or deed so that they can get him killed. And so they've been setting traps for him. And, and, the, and uh, the part of the story we're going to jump in now in verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 27, is the final of those traps that they're setting for him. So let's just kind of read that together, and we'll pause uh, throughout the story. But chapter 20, verse 27. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Okay, so let me just pause there for just a second. So keep your finger on your Bible or keep your phone open there. So who are the Sadducees? because this is really important to understanding the story. The Sadducees uh, are, were different and unique in many ways to the Pharisees or many of the other religious scholars, scribes, leaders at that time. The Sadducees, uh, amongst other things, were unique in the sense that they were the wealthy elite of their day. These were the rich guys. They were also the, the group often that goes with the wealthy elite. They had the most power of all the Jewish groups. And for them, they claimed the Torah, which is the first five books 
of what we call the Old Testament. That was their scripture. That was what they thought of as their authoritative text. And so the rest of what we consider the Old Testament, um, they didn't hold it with the same regard. And these might seem like random facts, but because of that, they also didn't believe in angels or the resurrection. Now try to keep a few of those things in mind because the question they're about to ask, all those facts are embedded in this question. And the original audience would have got this, but we need to like, you know, a little history to understand the context. So verse 28, here's their question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection... Whose wife will she be, since the seven were all married to her? Now, it's important to realize here in the midst of this question that there's more at stake than just like theological game playing, right? This is not just a theological debate. Because Jesus, throughout his ministry, has been referencing his death and his resurrection. And so what's at stake here is actually the very heart of the gospel. Because if the resurrection isn't true, then belief in Jesus is just a joke. It doesn't make any sense. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. These words will be on the screen. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if if our hope in Christ is only for this life, (laughs) we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But the Sadducees here, this is a crafty group, and they're building their case based on Scripture. They're building their case about the resurrection being a joke based on this text right here, Deuteronomy 25, 5. These verses, again, will be up on the screen. It says this, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Okay, so here's what's happening, because this can sometimes be a little tricky to follow. So based on the scripture, they're coming up with this scenario that they believe is possible based on the scripture. And this scenario in their mind makes the very idea of the resurrection ridiculous. And so if you're following the scenario, here's kind of what happens. So imagine the resurrection. The seven brothers have been brought back to life. The woman has been back, back to life. And they're standing there and they're like, okay, is that, is that your wife? Is that my wife? Is that... Is she married to all of us? And suddenly this like crazy family dynamics ensues, right? And they're basically saying like, this, this is a ridiculous scene. This doesn't make any sense. And because that could happen based on this, then the very idea of the resurrection is ridiculous. And they're, just, they're kind of mocking. They're intellectually mocking the belief in the resurrection. Who would believe in that? So how does Jesus respond to this ridicule and the belief of the resurrection? Here's what he says, verse 34. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he called the Lord 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all are alive. I love what Jesus is doing here. Okay, so he's responding to every verbal assault, every trap that they're setting for him with what I like to call, and you might want to write this down, rhetorical kung fu. <laughs> he's, just, he's coming in and he's like masterfully dismantling every sincere question. And as he does it, he's revealing the heart behind the question. And in this case, he's breaking down their rejection of the resurrection point by point. And just a few sentences, here's, here's the case he makes. He says, the resurrection is real. That people are not married in the age to come. That there will be no more death. That angels are real. And for those who are part of the resurrection, they're going to be God's kids forever and never die. And to make his point, Jesus is using scripture that these guys agree with to show that they're wrong. This is so genius. And this, this hope in the resurrection, this is all possible because of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's a hope that's offered to anyone who places their faith, who, who places their faith in him, both then and now. And so Jesus is being really, really clear. The resurrection is real, and with it comes a greater hope than likely any of them could have imagined. And this hope is true for us today too, right? For those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, this is an amazing hope. This is an incredible hope. That whatever life tosses at us, that there is a time coming where we will be with God forever and we will be his kids. And it's also a hope that's offered to all. But in this, and in this brief interaction, Jesus reveals his authority, his power, over those who claim to have the power and the authority. He shows that he's in control and that he's greater than anyone expected. Let's continue the story. Verse 39. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> I love just that little quip there in 39 because it shows that there's some people in the audience who have really enjoyed watching the, Pharisees, or the Sadducees publicly embarrassed. But notice what also is happening here is that everybody who opposes Jesus has now been silenced. Because every single one of Jesus' response is getting to the heart behind the question of the person who's trying to trap him. And it's in exposing that heart as a crooked, depraved heart. So now, he gets to ask a question. Verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. Then how can he be his son? Now, now just keep looking at those verses, all right? Because I don't know if you're anything like me, but the first few times I read this, um, my, my intelligent response was, what? Huh? Like this is kind of a, it seems like a kind of a confusing question. What exactly is Jesus asking here? What, what point is he making? What he's asking is, how can the Messiah be a descendant of David, therefore like a relative of David, a normal human being who, who is in the line of David, if David himself called the Messiah Lord? Got that? Are you following along? A couple nods, yes? This is so important because it gets to the very heart of the identity of who the Messiah is and therefore who Jesus is. Psalm 110, which is the psalm that Jesus is referencing, 
It shows that the Messiah existed at the time of David, which means that the Messiah was not just another normal, ordinary human being. And so Jesus' question, it implies that the Messiah was and is both human and divine. Now, for those of you here who have you know, been around church for a long time, this might not feel like an amazing revelation, right? right? You're like, I got that. That's kind of basic theology. But for these folks, that was not at all the expectation of who the Messiah was. This was blowing categories of what they thought the Messiah was supposed to look like. And this was claiming, this was Jesus claiming that, is he saying, is he saying what I thought he said? Is he saying he's God? This was much greater than they imagined. And, and I love this. He leaves, Jesus leaves his question just kind of hanging out there. We don't see a response, right? It's just hanging out there for the audience to wrestle with. And it's a question, honestly, that we need to still wrestle with today. Because those listening, are they going to accept this? Do they see Jesus as just a good leader, a good teacher, a good person? Or is he all that and Lord of all things? Verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So now Jesus' comments become painfully clear as he warns those who are listening to beware of these religious leaders. It's because these people across the board were using their religious authority for their own glory. They were enjoying their power for personal gain and for prideful self-promotion. And if that wasn't bad enough, they were taking advantage of the least powerful, the most vulnerable in their own community. And here's the truth. They look good on the outside. They put on a good show. But inside, their empty faith was revealed by their lack of care for the poor. And this group of religious leaders, they had no interest in submitting to the lordship of the Messiah, at least not this Messiah. Uh, Matthew records these words of Jesus about these same religious leaders. He writes this, and again, words on the screen. Woe to you, Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. Now, these leaders, they're receiving this incredibly harsh criticism because they're the ones who are supposed to be helping people connect with God, to know God. But instead, they're doing the exact opposite. Through their words and their deeds, they're creating barriers to knowing God, to making it almost impossible and I think it's easy to dismiss this or think of other people when we read this, but I think there's actually a warning that we all need to be thoughtful of if we're Christ followers that's built into this, this passage. And I think we need to ask ourselves a couple questions. First of all, does how we express our faith, 
Does how you express your faith, does how, how do I express my faith through both word and deed, does that put Christ at the center or does it put us at the center? Or secondly, is there anything we do in the name of Jesus, anything that we say in the name of Jesus that creates barriers <clears throat> excuse me, to people knowing God? I think we need to be honest. I know I need to be honest that we're all susceptible to being like these religious leaders. And so right after Jesus instructs his listeners to beware of these men, he then points to a better role model. We'll finish our story. Chapter 21, verse 1. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into a temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. All right, so I don't think it's coincidence that right after Jesus has condemned these religious authorities for taking advantage of widows, we get the story about a widow who's come to the temple to give her offering. And Jesus is sitting here with his disciples, and they're just watching people come up and give their offerings. And along comes this widow, this woman, unnamed, who's the epitome of the most disenfranchised, the most powerless, the most vulnerable in their society. She comes up and she gives two very small copper coins, which in, in our context would be the equivalent of less than $5. So not very much, not very much now, not very much then. But the text literally translated here says that she gave her life. And so this unnamed woman, this widow, this example of someone who is the most vulnerable becomes a contrast to the pride and the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. She becomes this example of honoring God with her humble and sacrificial giving. I love this. In this very short story, we observe something about the heart of God. We see that God doesn't necessarily celebrate the largest gifts or the biggest outward expressions of faith, but rather he weighs the heart. He sees the inside and he weighs that and he celebrates sacrificial giving to his glory, whatever that might look like. And so what does this all have to do with our lives? Well, the original audience, they struggled to understand whether or not Jesus was the Messiah, because he wasn't what they expected. They didn't have categories for what he was talking about. And in many ways, we can struggle with the same thing today. As we try to come to terms with, like, who is Jesus? Do we really know him? Oftentimes, our ideas about who Jesus, who he is, can easily be off base. Uh, here's a famous quote that I think illustrates this or shows this really well. So George Bernard Shaw famously quoted this. God created man in his image, and then man returned the favor. Now, for example, here, here's just, I'll just use myself as an example. Uh, I know sometimes that I can be in trouble when I start to conclude that Jesus and I agree 100% in our conclusions about politics, about society as a whole, the economy, my relationships, Basically, whatever's going through my head, if I'm like, yep, Jesus and I 100% on the same page, because it begs the question, am I being created fully into the image 
of God? Or am I shaping God or trying to shape God into my image? And I think it can be really easy. In fact, I know it can be really easy for us to come to Jesus with just loads of preconceived ideas about who he is and what it looks like to follow him that may not actually be right on. Because without realizing it, we can adopt ideas that are from our upbringing, from scripture, uh, from greater cultural ideas about Christianity, from sources that we probably can't even identify. But the common outcome, the common result, is that we very likely, every single one of us in this room, hold to ideas about Jesus that aren't actually true of Jesus. And so how can we, how can we foster an ever-growing understanding of Jesus for who he is, to experience him for who he really is and not for who we perhaps have created him to be. Here's just a couple uh, practical ideas that I want to leave you with and encourage you to consider doing uh, just, you know, like today, tomorrow, this week, before it kind of leaves your head and you forget it forever. So here's th- there's going to be three ideas of how to practically kind of put this into our lives. First one is this, is to meditate on Scripture. Sounds really simple, right? Psalm uh, 119.97 says this, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. And so meditating on Scripture just means this. It means chewing on it. It means dwelling on it. It means marinating in it. It means letting it get into the very fiber of your being, into your bones, into every thought, every decision you make. It just kind of like weaves its way into it. So here's what I want to ask you to consider doing. This coming week, I want to ask you to consider to meditate on Luke 21. So that's the next chapter that we're going to be going through this next week. Luke 21, at least five times. So read it, listen to it, reflect on it. And then what I'd love you to do with that is just write out any observations you make about who Jesus is. Maybe it's in a text message, maybe it's in an email, maybe it's on paper, whatever it is. Go through Luke 21 at least five times this week and just meditate on it and write out who you observe Jesus to be. And for those of you who have been uh, followers of Christ for a long time, this might feel like really elementary. You're like, man, I am so past that. I'm glad he's saying that for somebody maybe who's a new Christian, but for me, like, but here's my experience. The longer I follow Christ, sometimes the harder this can be. Because I'll come to a text and I'll just kind of blow through it because I'm like, yeah, I got that. I've read that or I've heard a sermon about that or whatever. Like, I get it, I get it. Let's move on with my day. But to meditate on it means that we, we just sit in it. We let it get into our thoughts. And the beauty about the God's word is that it's living and active. And every time we come to it, it has the power to transform our lives. And so let me encourage all of you to put this into practice this week. So that's one idea is just take some time to meditate on scripture. The second idea to help us foster an ever-growing understanding of who Christ really is and not maybe who we've created him to be is to learn from other Christ followers Uh, who hold to Orthodox Christianity, perhaps. Uh, So that means like they agree with the basic tenets, you know, of death, Christ's death, resurrection, things like that. But in other ways are not like you. And so uh, if you're here and you're a guy, let me just encourage you with this. I'd love to encourage you to read uh, a book, a devotional book, a theology book written by a woman. Or if you're here and you're Caucasian, I'd love to encourage you to take some time to listen to and learn from teachers of color. Spend some time with people from other cultural contexts. Visit other countries or spend time with people who, have, who live out their faith in a different cultural context than your own. And as we do this, we, get to, we start to see God in these different ways because God has revealed himself in Scripture. 
but he uses his global and his diverse church here on earth to be his body. And we can easily miss out on knowing him as well as we could, which is what we want to do, right? We want to know him as well as we possibly could. And we miss out on that if we limit ourselves to learning from people who are already pretty much just like us, which is kind of the natural tendency if we don't work against it. All right, so those are two ideas. Those both relate to this idea of fostering an ever-growing understanding of who Christ is. The third point that I want to make is more about how we live our day-to-day lives. And so if, if we're coming to know Christ more fully, a question that we should always be wrestling with, whether you're new on this journey, whether you're exploring Christianity, or you, whether you've been following Christ for like 60-plus years, wherever you're at, we should always be wrestling with what, how does our knowing Christ, how does that play out in the midst of our day-to-day ordinary, often overscheduled, busy lives. And I think, you know, we, we, we intuitively know that's something we should wrestle with, right? Like, we ask that question, I think, uh, throughout the week sometimes, but we don't often know, like, what that means. We, do I go to church? Do I read my Bible more? Like, what, how should that impact my day-to-day life? And we see in our scripture here today, we see that Jesus is condemning arrogance that is indifferent to the poor, and he's lifting up humility expressed through th- sacrificial giving. And so as we come to know Jesus more fully, here's something amazing that happens, is that we enter into this transformational relationship with the creator of all things, with the Lord of all things, and it changes us from the inside out. And so for someone whose life is becoming increasingly centered on Christ, their natural way of living, increasingly so, becomes a life of sacrificial giving and care for the most vulnerable amongst us. And that looks different for every single person, right? But those themes run through every life of a person who's increasingly centering their life about Christ. And so as a church, we want to be continually growing in how we express our care for the most vulnerable around us because of God's love for us. So that's why we have Serve Day on Saturday, August 29th. Now, I don't, I don't want this to come across like a commercial for our programming because it's not that. Really, th- this exists because it it's reflects an opportunity that gives us as a church an opportunity to do what we believe God has called us to do. So we created this because we saw Scripture and we said, God calls us to serve. How can we help our church do that? So we have Serve Day, August 29th. It's on Saturday. And here... Uh, we're going to have two opportunities, one chunk in the morning, one in the afternoon. And so as I said in the video, I'll remind you at the very end, here's what I want you to do right now is just block off that time. I'd love to encourage every single one of you to do whatever you can to make that time a priority as we go out into the community to be the church together. And then throughout the year, we are encouraging everyone here at Door Creek to be part of one initiative to help close the achievement or the opportunity gap that exists in our county. If that's something that you're unfamiliar with when I talk about that, we've got lots of information online, and this has been in the news a ton lately. Um, but we have, we're coming alongside all these different organizations and creating some of our own to help try to close this gap so that all can flourish. And we have opportunities for individuals, for couples, for families, for older people, for younger people, for small groups. But here's what I'm asking, just so I'm being really clear, okay? And this isn't just me. I'm asking on behalf of the staff, on behalf of the stewards, on behalf of the leadership here at Door Creek. I'm asking for every single person to consider picking one 
way that you, not the person next to you, that you are going to be part of this vision for the city. And my dream is, is that over time, that we're going to have church-wide participation in serving in our communities, in DeForest, in Sun Prairie, Monona, Cottage Grove, Madison, wherever you're from. And not just because I think this is really exciting, although if this happened, like, oh my, wow, it would be awesome. But because I believe that Scripture clearly calls us to practically and tangibly care for the most vulnerable in our midst in response to the transforming, transforming power of knowing Jesus. That's the kind of church we're called to be because that's the kind of God that we serve. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. Oh man, I thank you that you are beyond what we can comprehend. <laughs> that because you are God, that you, by your very nature, are beyond what our minds can even dream or imagine. And I pray that that would lead us to humble worship as we get down on our knees and just give you honor and glory as Lord of all things. And I pray, God, that as we live lives of worship, that that would play out in our day-to-day -day lives by caring for the most vulnerable, the, those around us who, who don't have a voice. Help us to help all flourish for your glory and in your name because of the gospel. In your name, amen. on there? Yeah, sweet. Okay, cool. Uh, we're going to enter a time of communion now. And uh, this is a time for us to spend some time just reflecting on what Christ has done for us and the new covenant, the new hope, the new promise found in him. And the way this works uh, here in this room is that we're going to be handing out the elements and we, we'll just hand them up and down the aisles. The two cups are together, so make sure you grab both of them. And then just hang on to them and I'll come back up and we'll take them together. Uh, now here at Door Creek, if you're new to joining us here, uh, we invite anybody here who has placed their faith in Christ to join us in this time of celebrating and remembering uh, what Christ has done for us. And if you're here and you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ and you're just kind of exploring Christianity and you decide not to take communion with us, uh, we just want to say thank you because that shows that you understand and respect that this is an important time for us. And we're so glad you're here. And so let me just kind of lead us into this time in worship, or I'm, I'm sorry, in prayer as we worship together. And then I'll come up after a few minutes and close. All right. God, help us to just take a moment to, again, remember that you're here in our midst. And as we take these elements, help us to remember your sacrifice on the cross and your defeat of death and the new hope, the new covenant in your blood. That is the source of all hope and joy and life. Thank you for loving us by sending your son to die on our behalf. In your name, amen.